lo and behold, that night to a show to four people, I saved this guy's business. That's my favorite show. It's Emron Pilati, your host of the Mind Your Own Business podcast, and I'm here with the one, the only, the movie star from a kid to an adult and now a father, uh, Thomas Ian Nicholas. Thomas, how are you? I'm good, Emron. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Now, we're going to work on a couple projects together throughout the year. Um, We have an upcoming event where you're going to meet and greet fans here in Sacramento, and that's just coming up. By the time this pod comes out, it'll be... They don't come out in just a few days. So we haven't had the event yet. You do these uh, activities fairly often as much as you can and meet and greet fans. What's it like as an experience for you? Tell me a little bit about why you've decided to do it. And we'll we'll go into the background and the business of the entertainment industry. But uh, just getting to know your fans and getting to see them in person. What's that? What's that like for you? Well, it's cool because, you know, the first time I got invited to ever do an event like that was at a Comic-Con in Wales. And I thought when they reached out to me, I said, well, I never did a superhero movie. I'm not in anything that's like comic book related. So why would you invite me to such a thing? Um, And it was then that I realized that it was that opportunity to meet people that are fans of my work. And to be honest, like to, to sit at a table and be approached by people that are just like, I love what you do. It's, you know, I really should probably be paying them to be there because it's just like affirmation, validation. Um, and just that, that you're relevant in their life and that there was a moment that that they remember. It's funny because I work with a lot of athletes and um, I represent them. So I'm sitting there while they're meeting their fans. And sometimes they'll, you get those fans, right? And they'll be, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years old. And their their mouth is moving faster than their brain. And it's a lot of, Hey, Thomas, do you remember that time when you were on Rookie of the Year? And remember when you did that one pitch? Yeah, that was cool. Like, what, what do you say at that point? <laughs> uh, Listen, man, I, I, I'm just thankful that that people dig what I do. So I, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to meet people in person, sort of break that fourth wall, so to speak, uh, and take a moment. And, and really, for me, if someone's grabbing, like, my autograph on a picture or whatever, it's more about the moment of meeting them right. than it is me signing that. So my entire goal in those situations is to just make people feel as good as they're making me feel by telling me how much they love what I do. That's awesome. Let's start from the beginning. Everybody knows you from two iconic roles that you played. The role that you played um, in Rookie of the Year as the featured actor in that, as well as your multiple appearances in the American Pie movies, but you've been in a lot of movies for a long time. From the very beginning, what was your first acting gig that you did? Do you remember auditioning for it? And how did you ever even get involved in that? Um, I do remember my first job. My, my first job was on Who's the Boss, playing a young With Tony, Tony Danza. Danza. Yeah, I played Tony Danza at the age of seven, and he played his own grandfather in a flashback episode. It was the 100th episode. I will I will segue this momentarily and say, I did do three things before that, uh, which to answer your other question of how I got started, my mom had, and I had moved to LA for her to pursue her career. And she started working in casting and working on these, like we call them indie movies now, but back in the eighties, they were just B movies. 
Mm. And so she would <laughs> well, cast- B, B movies is such a stigma now that it's indie movies, right? Right, yeah. So the indie movies of 1980, they were B movies. And, uh, and so she would cast herself sometimes and there was a couple of opportunities where she needed a kid. So she pulled me in. I loved being on set. So then I wanted to pursue it, but that's how I got my first taste, so to speak. The first real job that I did uh, was actually something like, like a, called Family Medical Center. I played a kid that got bit by a dog and it was just like <laughs> a, a simple scene. So for years, I've always said, I, my first job is who's the boss? Because that I sounds can, way cooler. Thomas, I can see this. Uh, uh, you're on action. Uh, what's my line? It's, ow, this dog bit me. <laughs> well, it's really funny because uh, I got this like fake stitch on my face. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so they, they show me like I come in to get like looked at and then uh, to like tell the doctor what happened. And then afterwards, you know, I get stitched up. But we left it on and then we totally like played a prank on our roommates afterwards. So, you know, uh, acting is uh, professional lying. You, you can do it sometimes to get paid. Sometimes you can do it to mess with your friends. <laughs> so Rookie of the Year, was that your first feature as far as you being the, the featured actor in a movie or a show? Yeah, because prior to that, I had done supporting roles in things like Radio Flyer and The Fear Inside. Um, that were feature films, but this was my first, yeah, Rookie of the Year was my first feature film with a studio and playing the lead character. How old were you at the time? Uh, I was 12. Um, my birthday's in the summer, so we, I booked that like, uh, you know, in the fall. We, we left for Chicago, I think, uh, September 9th. If I if I remember correctly, so when you look at a movie like Rookie of the Year, you're auditioning for it. You get the role. Do you do you know who almost got the role besides you? Was there anybody that of note? So it's kind of a crazy story. I guess they auditioned kids in L.A. and Chicago and New York. Um, I want to say it was somewhere. Maybe maybe three thousand kids had auditioned for this role. Wow! Uh, I know that Daniel Stern had talked to, uh, or had had offered it to Jake Gyllenhaal because Jake was the kid in City Slickers. I read an article recently that his parents turned it down because they wanted him to focus on drama. So thank you, Jake. Uh, <laughs> and then I know that uh, Danny was getting fed up not finding what he wanted, and his son, who's ironically named Henry. Um, mm -hmm who's now a senator here in California, uh, he was only 10, so he's two years younger than me. He was going to hire his son because his son wasn't an actor, but he knew he could get the performance that he wanted from his son, that his son had the right you know, tonality. And I auditioned for it, not once, but twice by accident, by sheer accident. I, I auditioned for it, no callback. I was changing agents. My new agent got me the audition. I said, oh, I already went on that. And she, being an actress herself, said, well, they obviously don't remember you, so go again. Do it again. <laughs> so I went again, and then I got the call back. And then I met, I had the call back with Danny, and, uh, and, and the rest is history. So for those that haven't seen the movie, give the premise, please, of this 12-year-old that uh, goes into the major leagues. Uh, yes, a, I play a 12-year-old that uh, loves baseball, lives in Chicago. He's terrible uh, on his little league team, um, but he, he winds up in a freak accident, breaks his arm, and when it heals, the tendons are too tight, 
He gets a hundred mile an hour fastball and gets drafted by the Chicago Cubs who are in a losing slump as per usual to their uh, prowess in the nineties and takes them all the way to win the world series. So the funny part about it was I was reading a Buzzfeed article and because rookie of the year came out, how long ago? Uh, it came out in 93. Next year is the 30th anniversary. 30th anniversary. So we're looking at this and I was reading the BuzzFeed article about how they talked to a doctor about how it's actually impossible for that to happen. I'm like, duh. Uh, yeah, I know that that's the magic of movies and imagination. And the fact that you guys actually took a, a medical doctor to find out if a 12 year old could throw 100 miles an hour because of a freak accident. My my favorite thing is when people argue about some of the baseball rules that were broken. Um, like they'll claim that like I boxed during the uh, hidden ball trick. Um, and and I, I I know that I didn't because Tim Stoddard, who was the pitching coach, made sure that I did all the right moves. But sometimes you can't see where my feet are. So yeah. that's where they get the argument. And then the other part of that is, guys, we're talking about a fantasy movie. <laughs> where a 12-year-old gets drafted to a Major League Baseball team and takes the Cubs to win the World Series, and you're worried about whether or not I balked during the hidden ball trick? Like, really? This is what we're talking about. So when you audition for this movie, you get the part, you film it, do you think it's going to be some sort of a massive, massive um, hit? What, what? When you go into a movie, what are the thoughts? Are there expectations that you as an actor have of a movie um, and, its, and its results? I mean, certainly the, the excitement of, you know, doing a studio film that you know is going to be released in theaters um, is, is really all it was. There was no thought of, like, how successful it would be. I mean, certainly, if you would have asked me at 12, uh, if I thought people would still be watching the movie today and showing it to their kids, I'd have been like, no, man, movies come, people, like, watch them for a little bit, and then they, you know... Then they go away. Like they don't. I I would have never imagined that it would have been a, a sleeper hit that it was. You know, it 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 grossed fifty million dollars in the box office, which in those years was a lot. I mean, yeah, this that's is equivalent to a hundred. Yeah, that, this is back before like movies were hitting. You know, a hundred, and that was like the the benchmark. I mean, hitting fifty or fifty four million uh, was amazing. But I I never would have imagined that it that it would carry on, especially today. And then you think about it, it's, it's like you went from, hey, aren't you that guy that was in Radio Flyer to now going, that's Henry, that's Henry. Like, maybe not instant overnight, but people start to recognize you on a standalone basis for what you were doing. How weird is that as a as an actor or as a, just as a person that now your privacy isn't as private as it, you thought it would be when you went down to the store or, you know, went down to anything. People were recognizing you on a different level. Yeah, I, you know, it was... There were there were moments that it was overwhelming, but I learned um, very quickly that like there was sort of an ebb and flow to that, meaning it always depended upon what you were doing. So okay. when we were like doing the press, you know, yeah, there was a lot of that recognition. If I was, you know, part of the all star game, uh, you know, at the Dodger Stadium and 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 then go to like try to sit in my seats yeah it caused a cacophony and like 500 people like swarmed me and security had to take me out um if i go i would go to auditions if i went to eat at like a place like planet hollywood i might get spotted there but when you start to do things that are like more normal 
it, it doesn't, it, it wouldn't be the same for like being at the grocery store. Sure. When you are where someone wouldn't expect you to be like in your everyday life. Um, and it's also, I learned, a, I learned as well. This is a story I love to tell uh, from when I did American Pie. I remember the film was in theaters. It was doing the same sort of sleeper hit stuff that Rookie of the Year was doing, where it was just consistently hitting these great numbers every week. So it's not like the tentpole movies of today where like, you know, a big Marvel movie comes out and it does like hundreds of millions of dollars opening weekend. And then it kind of like levels off and keeps going down from there. A sleeper hit is when it comes out and does well. And then it does well the next weekend. And then the word of mouth keeps it alive. And then it sort of stays like consistent. Sure. Always so in the top five for in the top five for quite some time. Exactly. Yeah. So, so American pie was doing that at the time. I had wrecked my like, uh, what year was that? My 94 Ford um, <laughs> like pickup truck. So I bought my, my I'm the youngest of seven from my dad's side. So uh, I, I bought my half brother's Volkswagen bug, a 1972 Volkswagen bug. It needed a paint job. So it had like one like unpainted fender. It was, you know, vanilla, but like had been painted in the 70s. So it was kind of faded. So I remember I pull up to a light and we're sitting at this light car next to me like looks over they do a double take they go oh man is that the guy and then they like look at the car and they go nah, nah. <laughs> and they just take off and i laugh because i it was then that i realized it's all about presentation right the same goes for anyone you could anyone can walk into a room like they own it and they don't have to have you know films under their belt and their in their resume and people will look at them like, oh, who's that? Right. And then another person who's, you know, maybe, you know, someone that is famous can walk into a room. And if they walk in kind of low profile, no one will look twice. Wow. Yeah. I, so, guess, I guess when you uh, walk into a place wearing sunglasses in the middle of the day, uh, you kind of get people going, who's that guy I think he is or whatever, versus if you just been a regular dude and treated people nicely. Hi everyone, quick interruption here. I'm sorry to jump in, but I'm hoping you're enjoying this podcast. If you do me a massive favor, no commercials, no sponsors. The only way that this grows is by you telling your friends, telling your family, telling your grandma. Come check out the pod, Mind Your Own Business. Please subscribe and rate. That'll help me get more traction and having you help me grow this podcast. Thanks again. Back to the pod. Let's lead into the American Pie stuff. So there, so you go from Rookie of the Year, and then you did several movies, obviously, in between the American Pie. What was the gap between Rookie of the Year and American Pie year-wise? American Pie is what, 99? Yeah, well, so the, the shoot years are 92 and 98, and then the release years are 93 and 99. Got it. So that in between leading into American Pie, tell me the premise. How did you get involved in that? How did that come to your table? Um uh, it was the same same thing, just you know, auditioning. I mean, that was there. There was obviously jobs in between those two. Um, there was a, a couple of films that, like a kidding here of his court, that Disney released, and then the sequel to that, uh, and then a bunch of like guest spots on TV and and this that and the other. You were consistently acting the entire time, earning your income through projects of acting, correct? Yeah, I mean that's you know that's what I've been doing. Well, I mean, I did that solely for 
let's see, from 86 until what year are we in now? 2022 <laughs> till 2012. And then I would say like in 2012, my music career started supplementing that, but it was still in entertainment. Sure. Um, so, you know, I would say, but yeah, for, for those, for that first period of time, it was only acting that was paying the bills. And now it's sort of both. So American Pie is this ensemble cast. For those that don't know what American Pie is, no spoilers, right? Even though it's a 23-year-old movie. 23-year-old movie. Um, premises, well, I want you to tell it. I've watched all of them, so I know. Oh, it's, it's simple. Uh, you know, four dudes in high school make a pact to get laid before they graduate. It's just, it, it's it's an American love story. Yes. <laughs> so it's an ensemble cast. And I don't think at the time when you guys booked it, anybody was of note, like a major, major movie star, maybe with the exception of you through Rookie of the Year. But at that point, it was really an ensemble cast, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an ensemble cast. I would say that, yeah, going into it, I was the only actor that had box office prowess just right. with Rookie of the Year and A Kidding Here Arthur's Court, both being studio released films into theaters and then advertising the ancillary and all that stuff. Um, but then they somehow like advertised it as a complete unknown cast and sort of hid that idea for the theatrical, sure. which I think gave people the idea to like sort of really, uh, you know, absorb the, the characters and, and live vicariously through them and, and take it all in. And then of course, if you notice uh, from a business perspective, if you look at the poster for American Pie, my head's turned sideways. And then when the DVD comes out, I'm the only one that moves to a smiling face <laughs> facing forward because that's the same smiling face that's on those previous two films. Because, you know, what is this? where does the studio make its real bucks? Ancillary, selling DVDs, at least back then. Is that true? Wow. Well, think about it. Think about the, the cost of putting a film... Putting a film into the theaters is basically a huge advertising campaign. For and the long tail income stream that comes from it. Well, for instance, American Pie, that's a $30 million advertising campaign. So yeah, we made the film for $10 million, $30 million in advertising. It goes out in 3,000 theaters. That profit of that $100 million, that gets split 50-50 with the exhibitors. Maybe there's a sliding scale, but we're talking about a sleeper hit. So there's not going to be a sliding split with the distributor of 80% down to 20 or down to 50. It's just going to be a straight 50 split. 50. Even if it's 80% on opening weekend, it made its money later when they were already in that like 50, 50. So I now, yeah. so now that's 50, that's a $50 million profit on a theatrical, right. On a film that they spent 40 making. So where do you think they made all their money? The DVD sales which only costs them a dollar to make or less. And they sell for how much? About there then was, there was like 20 bucks. Well, there, I remember when Blockbuster and Hollywood Video and all that was around. Um, I remember in order to get that DVD release, you're paying 80 or $100 per, per copy because you're going to use that four, five, 10, 15 times every two weeks. I think the prices had gone down by the time American Pie came out. Those are more the rookie of the year prices, which yeah. I, I met with the producer at one point. We had had lunch to catch up uh, when we were talking about the idea of a long-awaited sequel a few years ago. Um, and he was saying that rookie of the year was one of the last 
standouts for uh, VHS rentals in video mm. stores. But remember, that's 93, like coming into like the, to that late 90s. But by the time, and, and DVDs didn't even exist really. Like, right. I don't remember when they came out, but it was closer to the end. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. By, the, by the time American Pie was on DVD, it was it was selling for 25 bucks, I think, at like, you know, the stores and stuff. You know, there's a lot of people that don't understand this, uh, but you're actually a producer now as well in in Hollywood. So just so that way we understand the math, you said that when a movie hits the movie theaters, the movie theater itself, whether it's cinema, Cinemark or, you know, any of these different companies, AMC, they buy the rights to it, correct? So no, 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 they're not buying. How the does rights. that work? They're, they're the exhibitor. Okay. So they are. They are. Uh, are you lending the rights to the movie to use? No, there's no. There's no rights. There's no rights. The the studio, the distributor, owns the rights to distribute the film. Got the it. exhibitor just gets a piece of the of the ticket sales. So we'll just call it for simple math. Not getting into the sliding scale stuff of the of the temple movies. The easiest way to look at it is it's a 50-50 split with the distributor and the exhibitor. Wow. Because they're running the ticket sales. Sure. Think about it. It's like, you know, Ticketmaster taking their cut of selling a major artist. So the distributor, the distributor is only getting 50%. And then the other split after that is the distributor and the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the studio that owns it. So now in most cases, a big company like Universal or Disney, they own both. They own the property and they uh, distribute it. So they own the distribution and the production. But A Kid in King Arthur's Court technically wasn't a Disney production. Mm-hmm. It was a Trimark production. So Trimark sold that film to Disney, who then who then bought the rights. So we made it for $2 million. They bought it for four. So Trimark made double their money. And then Disney owned the production and then they distributed it. Got it. But the split between the distributor and the production is another 50-50 split. So when you look at the production actually seeing money, they're only getting 25%. So really, American Pie at $100 million in the box office is a loss. And you got to make up for it on all the merch and all the other stuff that you, right. the long tail income. The, so- the ancillary, which is, is DVD, cable, pay-per-view television etc we always hear that actors get royalties do you still get royalties from your uh things that you've done i still get royalties uh what most people don't understand is that royalties uh devalue similar i I always explain it similar to a car you buy a car for let's say thirty thousand bucks and let's look at it five years down the road is that car still worth 30 grand no way no it devalues it depreciates and it's the same with residuals. Mm-hmm. Um, the residuals depreciate. Plus, actors are only getting, I want to say that from the from the union standpoint, it's 6% split amongst all the cast. And then that's based upon how many days each cast member worked as to what, wow. of what percent of that 6% they get. Wow. So if it brings in $100 million, it's well, but you're, that. Yeah. but it's not off of it's not off of box Gross. office because there's so much. Because think about it. Remember what I just told you. Yeah, fifty percent of that's the exhibitor, so it's not a hundred million. It's not six percent of a hundred million. Six and then remember the distributor. That's not going to the actor, so that's another fifty percent. 
So a $100 million job is a $25 million profit for the production company. So now maybe it's 6% of that, but it's not really off of the exhibition of a film. It's off of the ancillary. Residuals are based on the ancillary. So you moved into producing movies. What year? I produced my first film in 2002. It was my uh, directorial debut, my producing debut, my writing debut. Uh, so I wrote, produced, and directed and starred in uh, a film that I made with my brother. What was the name of it? Uh, it's called L.A. DJ the Movie. So we based it loosely loosely off of my brother. my Because I remember I'm the youngest of seven on my dad's side. So this is my next brother up. It's kind of his story. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, both separately lived in trailer parks. So I didn't live with them because he's about six years older than me. But we both did. But he lived in a trailer park and then obviously moved to L.A. Um, his uncle on his mom on his mom's side was a, a DJ. And then he worked for him doing private parties like bar and bat mitzvahs and weddings, but then also got into the club scene in L.A. So the story of L.A. DJ, uh, which we kind of twisted a little bit of the details, was two brothers uh, come from a trailer park, moved to L.A. to break into the club scene and wind up DJing bar mitzvahs. Okay. <laughs> and now you're currently acting during that time. Uh, American Pie was filming in 2000, oh, sorry, 1998. Your role yeah, I think... While I was doing post-production, I was editing on a laptop in my trailer while shooting American Wedding. Wow. Wow. A little busy there. What yeah. is it, besides besides accomplishment and making sure that like you're advancing in your world of Hollywood, why do people want to produce eventually? I noticed that a lot of actors will move into production or executive producing, which in some cases is just throwing your name on it versus actually doing something. Directing is different. I want it to look like this. I'm going to shoot it this way. What is it about acting and moving into the production and directing side that makes so much sense for something like yourself? I mean, there's a, yeah, like you said, you pretty much covered all the, the reasons that exist. For myself, um, I started producing because I wanted to control my own fate. Meaning as an actor, you're sort of like a, a fisherman. Well, you're not the fisherman because your agent is, but your, your agent is casting a net, seeing what's out there. Then you go and audition or you take meetings or whatever it is, and you maybe get a job that is available in that realm. So you're not really controlling your own fate. You're just sort of like- Making yourself available. and saying, Making yourself available and doing what's there and then creating the character that is there for you to create that is in someone else's story. Controlling my own fate is producing and saying, okay, I want to play a character like this. So let's make that movie, especially when, you know, I'm, if I'm writing it, which I, I haven't done in a while. Writing is a, it's not really my bag. Um, I have a great partnership right now. And these three films, obviously no one can see behind me but uh, you have three, on the podcast. You have three posters of movies behind you. Describe right. it, please. Yeah. So there there's uh, and these are the three that, that my business partner, Brian Metcalf and I are the most proud of. The first one is The Lost Tree, which came out in 2017. Uh, the second one is Living Among Us, which came out in 2018. Uh, and the third one is Adverse that came out in 2021. So these are all distributed into theaters. 
Uh, they're all available, you know, on DVD and, and streaming platforms mainly where people watch them now. So they were released by Redbox, Sony, and Lionsgate. Um, and so these ones were char playing characters that I wanted to do that were conceptualized by my business partner, Brian Metcalf. We have a, a great partnership where he's the writer, director, but we both produce together. And then I get to play, you know, the lead character or a character that I really gravitate toward in his writing. So when you, when you produce a movie, are you creating, directing, not you, but like when you're owning the whole package, do you go find a studio that will pick this up for, from you? Or do you operate as a studio that's going to, you know, create your own funding for a project? Uh, it, all of the above. As a producer, you're the, you're the boss. So typically in film, an executive producer can be someone who invests in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've, we've done gambits like that, which I, I remember reading uh, the, there was a, a book, now I'm spacing on the title, but I remember the first story in the book about like directors making their movie was a story about the Coen brothers and how they made Blood Simple. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of been my model for, for years. Um, and, and what, what they did with Blood Simple is kind of what I did with my first film. Started an LLC, sold shares in the company to investors to raise the financing to make the movie. And then once we were done, we shopped it around for distribution. Um, and then as we continued to do that, our relationships have, have grown. Um, and, you know, getting the, the, the studios to distribute the property that you create uh, becomes easier. Um, so the, L the LC group funding doesn't happen so much anymore in somebody like your position, or do you still do that? Cause you like the grassroots aspect of it to, to bring people in and, and be shareholders into a project. I, I still do that because, because that gives us the control. Mm -hmm. If you involve the distributor or the, the studio on the beginning phase, then they're going to want to develop it with you. They're going to want to tell you which direction to go. And now you're back to my original issue of being just an actor and just taking whatever is available that I like right out of out of it's kind of like do you want to go to the grocery store and and shop for food or do you want to go and make the food that you want to see on the shelf and that's why it's like the the freedom and liberation of being able to do your own thing you don't want to be at the mercy of that just because they're in control of the financials Makes right it's, it's it's like going to a restaurant and ordering or being the chef so right. if we if we continue currently and, and, you know, what we've done with all these films is we've started those LLCs and raised that financing and then gotten the distribution so that we can get our investors back their money uh, and their profits. So we, we still go we still go in that in that gambit because it gives us the, the creative control. You are at your where are you at right now? I'm I'm in my production office uh, for Black Jelly Beans. We we just moved on to the Warner Brothers studio lot uh, a couple of weeks ago. Great. Um, mainly mainly we started. We've got. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at the board right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine projects that are in various stages. Um, we mainly moved here because we had done a, a good pitch uh, with another company that's not this studio, uh, that they wanted us to develop something um, and sort of fast track it through with them. So we're, we, we were like, hey, we need to have a space 
my business partner, Brian Metcalf, and I realized that when we were in pre-production on any of our films, our work, uh, I guess our mode of work and productivity was exponential versus in the in-between time, we would talk on the phone and we'd just be in our own separate home offices and our productivity slowed a lot. So much, and so and, and this is kind of the crazy person. thing that, that I'm, I must, I don't work in a regular office, obviously, and I'm, I'm my own boss, but I, I imagine, I can't imagine what, what productivity would be like when COVID hit and people were like working from home offices and now they're not going in anymore. That's got to slow productivity down for I'll, businesses. I'll tell you this, you know, I, I just recently left as vice president of my real estate franchise, big franchise. And I used to make the drive from, <clears throat> I don't know if you know Northern California geography, but I think you do. It's uh, from Stockton all the way to Pleasanton. I was driving that every day, you know, it's like an hour and a half each way. And I didn't have to, but I think it's really good to do that if you're in leadership to show other people that work for your company that you're right there with them. And there was something about that synergy of being physically in the same office. But when we went to COVID protocols and we were just going virtual and we're doing everything Zoom, I told my wife, let's let's move to where we want to move. We moved now to Roseville where we live. And the the change of productivity is so different because you can't get that, hey, do you have a second? Let's collaborate. Let's come up with an idea. You've got to set the meeting. I mean, you and I, I lost my voice last week. You're in New York. Like there was a bunch of... Like it's difficult when you're not in the same room because you've got to coordinate all this stuff together and life happens versus if you're physically in one location, it changes everything. And I think that with the way that a lot of people have been for the last two years, they're very adverse to going back to an office or even some sort of collaborative space unless they're in the creative world, like what you're doing, you know, and, and you're saying, I need that creativity to be next to me so we can you know, put in a long day, do the work and then go home feeling fulfilled versus shit, I couldn't hear anything on the podcast and his microphone was wrong and all this other nonsense yeah there's, there's something about the energy too of just being in the same space you know the, the it's it's you can tell you can tell we all we all feel it we can't maybe identify it but it exists so we're gonna go to your projects and we're gonna wrap up with the projects but get to the music part so you have this passion for music very talented and the fact that you're an actor do really well in producing and directing, but where, where did the music side come into it? And when did that start becoming a viable financial opportunity for you? Um, I started playing guitar when I was about 14, um, probably more for like a creative outlet, really. Um, and I remember I was inspired by like a, a kid I went to school with um, who really didn't stand for much of anything. But when Kurt Cobain died, he did like a week of silence and got sent to the principal's office every day and I was like man how how wild is that here's this kid who can't apply himself to anything I mean he was like the failing student I mean he was also like the cool kid right he's only only him and his buddy were the only people that had a, a band quote-unquote he played guitar and his buddy played bass so he didn't really have a band but it was like they were the cool guys but he didn't really stand for anything he wasn't passionate about anything until this happened and it just kind of turned my head like toward the power of music in a different way. I mean, I loved 70s rock and my mom's collection, um, but it was suddenly, it was then that I noticed there'd been this guitar in like the corner of our apartment my whole life that I never saw until that time period. And I remember right around then, like my buddy started playing guitar. So his dad like showed me some chords 
And I just, I, I just fell in love with the idea and of like trying to get my guitar to sound like what I was listening to, mm -hmm. which took forever. So we're talking like three hours a day, every day for a year. Wow. To, and I have some awful recordings on cassette tape <laughs> of me starting out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I recorded my first album when I was 17. I was really inspired by my cousin who lived in Vegas, who had grown up in bands. And he kind of showed me like how to structure writing a song and what, you know, where to kind of come from and just all this kind of stuff. So uh, I recorded my first album in 97. I've destroyed all copies. You'll never hear it now. I'm sure you can still find it somewhere. Uh, I did I did a couple of EPs after that, but it, it wasn't until 2008 when I started writing with actually one of my friends from junior high school, a different guy who uh, his cousin is Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin produced um, Pink Floyd, The Wall, Peter Gabriel, Alice Cooper, just to name a few. Um, and so we wrote a few songs together that were like finally the sound that I was like had taken. We're talking from probably from 94 to 2006. And I played in bands and recorded albums, but it wasn't until I wrote these songs I was like, oh, this is what I've been trying to do. So again, like I always pretend that who's the boss is my first job. I pretend that without that was warning, your first album is my first album. So but, you know, I, in today's day and age, you have to sort of like open the Wizard of Oz curtain and let people right. know, like, yeah, they're going to find I know it's not the first, but we're just going to pretend it's the first. So, um, as you, so that turned into a very successful because, I, you know, cheap applause is easy to get, especially if you have success as an actor before. It's like, look, Thomas Ian's coming up with a uh, an album. You didn't really parlay that too much, right? You let the music stand for itself versus trying yeah. to play off of previous success in a different field. You know, it 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 kind of varied like in in different capacities. Where a lot of times I would get gigs, and the promoters would really lean hard on, you know, the movie aspect to draw people out. But unfortunately, there's a there for at least at the time that this was happening, and maybe it's a little less now. I feel, or maybe it's still the same. But there was a a, a predetermined idea that like actors being singers we're never really that good <laughs> so you know what the, that, that's not a stigma that's a or a, a yeah it's a stereotype. stereotype that's for real it is for real unfortunately a lot of i i find that it's less the other way around okay. a lot of like you know music artists try to act. i would say like yeah when they go to acting i would say like 80 percent of them are pretty decent and when it's the other way around you're like 80 percent of them are terrible <laughs> um so, you know, they would lean on that, but it wouldn't necessarily, you know, draw people out uh, in that way. But it, for me, it's always just about, you know, performing and connecting with people on that level with what started for me, the power, the power of music that got this kid who wasn't passionate about anything to be passionate about something. And, and so, I don't know, for, for me, there's like music is a bunch of different things. It can be like, if I write a song that's about a, something challenging for me, it can be my own therapy. And so maybe someone else connects with that, you know, uh, or they interpret it their own way. There's so many ways that it can be. Yeah. And, and, and I've played in front of, you know, anywhere from, you know, four people to like 10,000. Um, wow. 
and and it's always the same. Where, where was the four people? The four people was my favorite show uh, that I've ever played. Come on, was it for family? No, uh, I was on tour in Germany, Denmark, and the Czech Republic in 2010, and we were playing these music houses. And so, what what a music house is in Germany is it's essentially like a bar, a legit bar downstairs. And then the owner of that bar lives in an apartment above the bar okay. and it's called a music house and they're subsidized by the government. And so they can bring artists in to tour. And there's not that many of them left, maybe only 14, but back in the heyday, like they like they were everywhere, but they still are a few left. So we go and play this one in Germany on a Sunday. And when we get there, the promoter, the owner, he was really, really mad. And we didn't know why. So we, we he makes us dinner. And he's like showing me like the, we, the advertisement in the newspaper. And he's, he turns on the radio and like my song plays. And he like shows all this like promotion that he did. And we're like, oh, that's really cool. Like, thank you. And he goes, yeah, only four presales. And he, we're like, oh, snap. Okay, so he's mad because he advertised this show and nobody bought tickets except for four people. So I'm like, snap. Okay, that sucks. So we're hoping, eh, maybe we'll get some walk-ups. But it was Sunday. Sunday's like, you know, stay home and cook dinner day in Germany, apparently. <laughs> so we go to we go to start the show. Or the, apparently, apparently. apparently. So the show's about to start. Doors are open. And the guy comes in. He goes, do you want to cancel the show? And we go, why? And he goes, well, you only have four people here. Does that mean that you're still getting the guaranteed pay of what you were charging for that right whether you sing to four people or four thousand i don't know okay. i don't know what it would have meant because i never went down that road i just looked at him and i said so you have four people there and he goes yeah and i go are those the four pre-sales he goes yeah that's it no one else just the four people and i go well they're here right he goes yeah and i go they paid right he goes yeah and i go then let's play a show and then he kind of looked at me a little bit differently and so expecting the diva mentality that you'd be right I can't see in front of four people. So I went out and I delivered the same show that I always do. If it was 10,000 people, it would have been the same show. So it was, it was a duo night. It was me and my guitar player on that particular tour. Uh, later, we were I opened for Chris Barron from the Spin Doctors. That was the back half of the tour. But this is like the last show before we go pick him up. So uh, at the end of the show, I knew that like Springsteen was big in Germany and there's only four people. So I bring the four people to like, the front table and they sit down i unplug the guitar i come sit down and i jam spruce springsteen right at the table so there's this one guy there uh this russian guy who just had the time of his life at the show so then he looks at the owner and he, he he's talking to him and it turns out he wants to invest in the bar because he's like he thinks this is so great <laughs> unbeknownst to me the bar was going out of business and when the Russian guy wanted to invest, it saved the business. Oh my God. So this is all happening like behind the scenes. I have no idea. I just, the only thing I knew was the guy advertised. No one really bought any tickets. He offered me to cancel and I didn't want to cancel and I performed. And lo and behold, I, that night to a show to four people, I saved this guy's business. And then he was like giving me gifts. He was like, he made his own coffee and like had these like coffee plants that like was growing the berries and like taking the seeds out and you're roasting them. And he's like, here's a whole thing of coffee. And like, 
gave me like all these gifts from his like store and things that he was creating on this added business. And yeah, that's my favorite show out of 800 shows. Okay. Then on the con on the contrary, just real quick, the 10,000 person show. What is that? Um, that was, uh, Temecula balloon and wine fest same year, actually opening for Kenny Loggins. Wow. Um, and, and before us was, uh, Al McKay and the Al McKay all-stars Al McKay of the, uh, earth, wind and fire fame. Um, which Kenny listened to our music and said, oh, he chose the order of the lineup. So he let us open up for him. So yeah, it was 10,000 people. But recently, the, the, the fun shows have been performing with Bowling for Soup. Which, which are known for? They're known for their, their big song is uh, 1985. That's right. Uh, which I did the parody version. Uh, and I'm now really good friends with Jarrett Reddick, the lead singer. I did the parody version called 1999. We sing all about the American Pie cast. Um, so I'm going on tour with them to play uh, three shows in the UK opening for Bowling for Soup. And then Jarrett has a country band. So then I'm doing two more shows opening for the country band. My God. My God. Um, but I've been, get, I guested all summer long. They were on tour with Less Than Jake doing like, I don't know, nine weeks of summer touring. And I would pop in every once in a while and just sing the song 1999 with them. And they were in like, you know, like 1500 to 3000 cap rooms sold out, uh, which was I, just a lot of fun. Cause their fans are just like, I was going to really say, embracing this. This is, this is something that I think people don't get. I have certain smaller bands or performers that I would definitely go to go see out here in California. There's a couple of different places, like when Jason Mraz would play, I'd go see Jason Mraz and was standing room only. I can't remember the name of that place where it's standing room only in San Francisco. Farrell, Farrell, I don't remember the name of it. Went to a couple of those. I like a guy named Justin Young. And and those places are packed. But when you have a guy group like a Bowling for Soup or your band, like Thomas Ian Nicholas band, when you guys go around, you have loyal fans that sell out these little not little venues but sometimes bigger venues and it's pretty consistent right like how do they how does that happen that momentum to where you know you're going to be playing in front of 500 to 1500 people at any given time any anywhere you book it's just kind of a beautiful i mean yeah for for bowling for soup i mean they've got you know a multitude of hit songs they've got a great show they consistently tour i mean i think next year they they've sold out so many shows in the uk that next year they're going to be doing like stadium shows there. Um, so, but they've had, you know, number one songs and, and their, their fan base is just really, really loyal. Um, for myself, it's, it's, um, you know, there's no real like rhyme or reason <laughs> to a degree. Although tomorrow I'm leaving on the emo's not dead cruise. We're going down to Mexico. It's a four day cruise. Really? Emo's, yeah, not uh, dead. emo's not dead. It's the, the bands on the cruise are, uh, Newfound Glory, Dashboard Confessional, uh, Under Oath, Plain White Tees, Hawthorne Heights, Cartel. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and so I'm I'm doing a bunch of like emo DJ sets and playing an acoustic show on Friday, and you know, getting to go on a cruise. <laughs> How, and and then everybody on the cruise itself are specifically fans buying for that reason, or is it just a yeah? Substance? No, no, it's it's a six. I think it's six thousand people on a on a emos like everyone there 
is a fan of those bands. They're there That's for crazy. that cruise. Wow. Yeah, we're not just like, I mean, I've done them in the past where we've been like a few hundred people, you know, on a, set a cruise ship that we're like doing our own parties. Uh, but this one is like, it's all put on by them. Yeah. You know, you're going to be at my event here shortly, uh, next week or so. Yeah, next week. And I'm a big, big wrestling fan, huge. So they have a, I have quite a few wrestlers there, like Sergeant Slaughter, Rikishi, Greg the Hammer, Valentine. I don't know if you're a wrestling guy or not. Godfather will be there. But um, there was a wrestling cruise, and I, I was bugging my wife. So I said, this sounds ridiculous, but can I please go on a wrestling cruise? That, goes, that's the you same go on company. a wrestling cruise by yourself? Oh, same company? Sixth Man, yeah. It's that they put on all these cruises. Wild. Anyways, uh, she goes, you be, you can go on the cruise, no problem. I go, by myself? She goes, I'm not going on a stupid cruise with you. I go, don't you ever call it stupid again or we're, we're going to be in trouble. Um, <laughs> as we close out, tell me some of the projects that you're working on that you're pretty excited about that people should know. I don't know that what I can really say about the upcoming yeah. projects, but I can promise you this. Uh, with my last film uh, going head-to-head with Mickey Rourke, that was a, you know, a big... Uh, feather in my cap of like getting to act with you know an amazing actor that everyone knows and loves and that movie was uh that was adverse that, that was, was adverse. yeah that's yeah. adverse right if i can even why well, i'm pointing to it but people on the podcast can't don't see worry me. don't worry you, you don't look silly pointing to the wrong <laughs> poster not on a podcast and we'll never mention it not even once so don't no worry. we won't talk about pointing to the wrong poster at all it's because my image is mirrored so correct i get it i can't i don't even know what my right from my left right now um the other projects yeah i can't I, I can't really say too much but i can i can promise you this uh you you know the cast that's going to be involved and you love them incredible uh and you're going to want to see these films okay. i know we're we're looking at the first one shooting in in georgia the second one shooting in the uk and the third one shooting in portugal and that's just the first three of the of the nine that we are uh in various stages of development and um and not none of them are, are currently in pre-production yet that doesn't happen until you get your start date um, um, so, I, so I various you, stages of development i know you have at least one child do you have more than one or are you s- i have two yeah bill how old are they by the way uh my son is 11 um and he and my daughter is six my son is following in my footsteps. If you saw the latest M night movie old, he is the main kid in that film. Wow. Wow. It's his rookie of the year, basically. Um, no, it's pre pre that because he was eight turning nine. So, uh, and he's only 11 now. So, I mean, but yeah, it was his, does he like it? Is he, is he going to pursue this? Oh yeah. He's, he's constantly asking me like, Hey, any auditions come in? Like, Hey, did you hear about these jobs? <laughs> Hey, dad, I really need to work again. He's like back in acting class now that, you know, we can have in-person classes again this year um, and really, really digging it. You know, he's, yeah. he was, he's got a small part in adverse and his first job was on new girl with Zoe Dashanel and Jake Johnson. He was on the show finale. Wow. Uh, played their future forward son, which that's kind of ironic is that his first job was on new girl in a, a flash forward and then my first job was on Who's the Boss back. in a flashback. What an amazing circle of life, isn't it? Um, right. Here's how did I know that you're huge on TikTok and other platforms. How do people follow you? How do the people 
uh, know what you're doing next? Um, at Tinband, T-I-N-B-A-N-D, like Thomas Ian Nicholas Band. So at Tinband is my handle on everything from websites to, you know, Instagram to TikTok. Uh, if you go to my website, I actually have a Google calendar that lists all of my events. So uh, obviously, you know, I can't put my event uh, going to the Sacramento Sports Card Show with you as a concert on Songkick and Bands in Town. Sure. So my Google calendar has my, uh, you know, my meet and greet appearances. That, that's helpful. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to let people know. People that are listening to this are in all genres of business. So it's like, I want people to know that I'm available, but I also want them to know when I'm not. You're using just something as simple as Google Calendar to get you through that. Yeah, because then people can just look at it or, you know, shoot, if they if they, if they they really want to, like, get involved, they can subscribe to it. <laughs> hey, that's how you do it. And then on socials for uh, for your Instagram and your TikTok? Uh, that's it's all at Tinband. So that's oh. in, instant Instagram, Twitter, if Twitter is even going to exist anymore. Uh, are you TikTok. Gonna, the question that everybody asks her, are you Thomas willing to pay the eight bucks a month to keep your blue check mark? Uh, I mean, I just started paying five dollars a month just to be able to edit because I made a mistake recently and I was like, damn it, I gotta spend the five bucks just to fix that tweet because I don't want to delete it. I was lazy, I didn't want to like delete it and re and redo it. it it had a lot of tags in it and things and i was like ah whatever i can't start this over by deleting it and starting a new one i must use this existing one well because every other platform you can edit right i mean not on tiktok actually so not every other platform but yeah dude it's been a pleasure talking to you i really appreciate it thank you and i'll see you next week <laughs>